Welcome to the PMHMP Podcast, the definitive podcast for those passionate about mental health throughout every stage of life. Whether you're an aspiring professional, a seasoned expert, or someone simply keen to understand the intricate world of psychiatric care, you're in the right place. I'm Dr. John Rossi, a certified PMHMP nurse educator and lead content creator and instructor at Clarity Education Systems and www.pmhmptesting.com. All right, welcome back. Excited to be here with you today. Um, I think today we're going to talk about something that most students are kind of nervous to approach when preparing for the examination for the certification exam, as well as seasoned professionals who maybe have been doing this for a while but haven't quite figured it out yet, and that's cultural competency or cultural care within a very specific population or group of people. Understanding who they are, where they're coming from, and then how to apply interventions appropriately or just interact appropriately to make sure that they are taken care of and that they feel comfortable within your practice setting. So cultural competency for the nurse practitioner involves understanding and respecting those diverse beliefs, values, traditions, and practices of the patient or their family members. Um, And this is from very different cultural backgrounds. And this ensures effective and personalized patient care. And so what I want to focus on is what's included within that cultural competency. So that's first self-awareness. So recognizing one's own cultural biases and beliefs. You have to know what you believe first so that way you know if something's going to conflict and then how you're going to overcome those uh, conflicts in order to resolve not only yourself, but uh, how you're going to communicate that and act around your patient and their family. And then next is knowledge. So we want to learn about those different cultures and then health-related beliefs within that cultural competency. Skill is next. So communicating effectively with the patients from diverse backgrounds. Learning how to you know, really connect with them and understand who they are and where they come from by understanding their culture. Fourth, we have attitudes. So respecting the difference and then being open-minded, right? Being open-minded does not mean that you have to agree with whatever your patient or their family believes in. That's, that's not what open-mindedness is. To be open-minded, it means that you're going to be receptive of that person, that you're going to listen to them, that you're going to take into consideration what their thoughts and beliefs are, and then being open-minded enough to create a care plan and to establish a relationship despite your own biases and beliefs. That is an attitude that really fosters quality care. Fifth is encounters, engaging with diverse populations to enhance understanding. Don't be afraid to go out and become familiar with something that you're not comfortable with. Engage in your population. Engage in those communities. Take a look. Do an inventory of what's around your city and what's around your area. You may be somebody from a very urban setting and environment that couldn't find a job or maybe they wanted to get uh, education money to help pay back their student loans so you've moved out into a rural area. That can be a totally different experience for you and culture can be a huge shock. Get out there. Get to know them. Be a part of community activities, get on boards, and really dive into that um, culture so that way you're able to understand who they are and where they're coming from. And then finally, six on my list is, is a desire, right? A genuine interest in becoming culturally competent. So cultural competence, it's care, okay? It's care that improves patient outcomes. It builds trust, 
and reduces health disparities. These are all very, very game on when it comes to certification questions. And if you are a part of my PMHMP review, you understand that when it comes to cultural competency, because I say it so much, that you want to look for answers that include the word respect. Respect, respect, respect. It is everything when it comes to providing cultural care and cultural competent care. So for cultural competence, self-awareness categorizations often revolve around recognizing and understanding one's own biases, right? Those stereotypes and those assumptions. So some of the specific areas to consider um, include ethnocentrism. So this is the belief that one's own culture or group is superior to others. You know, I think just hearing that definition makes you step back and think, oh yeah, that's not a good thing. Um, so we want to be able to overcome that. Next is stereotyping, making assumptions about individuals based on generalized beliefs about their group. Just because a person is a part of a certain culture or group does not mean that they believe everything within that group or that they represent everything that you might have stereotyped about that group. Implicit bias. All right, this is that unconscious attitude or stereotype that affects understanding your actions and your decisions. So we want to avoid or overcome those implicit biases. Cultural blindness. This is ignoring the difference and treating everyone the same, which can lead to overlooking specific needs. We are not all the same. By being a mental health provider, you understand that, or you should understand it. We have to overcome that cultural blindness so that we see the person and then what makes them who they are. And for the most part, that's culture, that's background, that's an upbringing, and we want to understand that. Even if that patient doesn't really practice that cultural um, influence at that particular point in time in their life, they have been influenced in some way or fashion. So we want to at least know where they come from, understand that they may not be that same person now, but that there's gonna be some, you know, some stuff that's already embedded within them that we want to make sure that we at least approach and talk about and then we are able to communicate that information clearly and the patient can say nope that's not a part of me but they're going to know that you've at least done your homework that you've done your background check that you understand their culture whether or not they are in it or practicing it that's that's something that they'll let you know but we want to at least understand where they come from privilege that's a big one recognizing the advantages one might have due to their culture, socioeconomic, or other group memberships associated with that privilege. All right, then we have microaggressions. So this is subtle verbal and nonverbal insults or slights directed at a minority or marginalized group, often unintentional, okay? Um, microaggressions, while they may come across as being, you know, totally benign to the persons that, that's doing it, it can be very damaging and very hurtful to an individual that it is, um, you know, put on, okay? Uh, so I, I feel like I often see this when the, within the LGBTQ community as well as religious communities where we're, we're not trying to um, be hurtful or insult them, but just based on our own, you know, knowledge and self-awareness and um, ethnocentrism and stereotyping, we, we do that, and we verbally and non-verbally insult without meaning to. So we want to avoid that at all costs. Number seven on my list here is cultural identity. Understanding one's own cultural background, traditions, values, and beliefs. We've talked about that at the beginning and how that, and how that forms a part of your cultural competency. 
personal experiences with discrimination or bias. So reflecting on times when you've faced or witnessed discrimination, this can help provide insight into the situation that you're dealing with with a particular patient. One, it can help you prepare ways to um, help them deal with some of the biases and discrimination that they're going through. You don't want to personalize it for you. You want to personalize it for your patient. But you can definitely rely on some of those experiences that you've had and then figure out a way to, you know, explain that to your patient to help them come to their own conclusions and ways that they personally can overcome those discriminations. And then finally, um, we have cultural humility, an ongoing process of self-reflection and learning about other cultures, recognizing one's limits in knowledge. That's being humble, right? Cultural humility. What don't you know? And then what can you do to find out more information and become better educated about your culture? So regular self-reflection, education, and seeking feedback are crucial for identifying and addressing these areas. This is going to ensure more effective and empathetic care for diverse populations. So these specific cultures, um, within that, a nurse practitioner should really prioritize and then vary how they're going to approach each individual and each cultural area. And so this is going to depend a lot on the, the region and the population that's being served and then changing demographics within those specific regions, especially if you're in a very urban area. Now, based on global migration patterns and diverse populations in many Western countries, including the United States, we need to identify specific cultures um, in order to consider what we would, what we would categorize as the top um, cultures within our environment here in the United States in order to understand them better. So I, I've kind of put together a list here of the top 15 cultures that you may encounter within our uh, population here in the United States. Again, this is going to vary greatly depending on whether or not you live in the north or the south, in the east or the west, or somewhere right in the middle of, Mer right in the middle of America. So Hispanic, or um, also referred to as Latinx, the uh, customs, values, and health beliefs from various countries in Latin America, all right? So that's going to incorporate that Hispanic Latinx community. African American, so understanding the historical and current experiences affecting health and wellness within the African American population. Native American or the indigenous population to the United States, so recognizing the diverse tribes and their unique traditions, values, and health practices. We're going to dive into each one of these later on. This is just a general overview of what you might encounter within the United States. Asian American, so this includes diverse groups like Chinese, Filipino, Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese, and others. Um, each with their own distinct cultures. So again, we don't group them all into one, even though we're calling them Asian Americans. It is very diverse, even within that category. South Asian, so you can see we've already separated it, right? Cultures from countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, all very, um, you know, apparent within our communities here, especially if you're on the east or west coasts, um, coastal cities, you're going to see a lot of these individuals uh, from those particular areas. Middle Eastern, uh, North African, so this can include Arabic, Persian, Kurdish, and other cultures from countries like Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Egypt. African, countries in Africa have diverse cultures, Nigerian, Ethiopian, Somali, and more. Uh, just Africa is a huge and extremely diverse um, uh, location, and we get a lot of uh, individuals 
moving and migrating over to the United States. So need to understand those different populations if you're within an area where they have come together and uh, started uh, living together. Okay, European. So we're going to see a lot of European influence in the United States, right? Just makes sense, just based on our, our history. So while many Western health practices originated from European traditions, understanding specifics um, within the European um, culture is important, like Eastern European or Mediterranean practices, because this can be different. And so that's going to be beneficial to understand the differences between the European cultures. Specific um, areas within the Pacific Islanders, so cultures like Samoan, Tongan, and Hawaiian, very different cultures within the specific Islanders category. Caribbean, so cultures and countries like Jamaican, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic. Jewish, understanding both religious and ethnic aspects to this group. Muslim, recognizing that Islamic practices and beliefs might influence healthcare and decisions within, uh, with their experiences. LGBTQ+, so while not a culture per se, it is a in a traditional sense, like we were just you know, mentioning other cultures throughout the world. Um, this is this is very unique population with very unique healthcare needs and experiences that are crucial to understand when dealing with them, um, and their and their belief systems and and you know what they uh, what they associate with and who they associate um, to. Okay, next we have the refugee and immigrant population. So recent migrants may have a unique health benefit um, and belief systems and uh, traumas that they're dealing with because of their migration or refugee status or needs depending on the country and origin of migration. Um, they're, they're all going to have different experiences and different needs. Finally, we have religious groups such as Buddhists, um, Mormonism, or Latter-day Saint, and others that have specific health-related beliefs and practices. Each one of them is going to be different. A lot to understand, a lot to comprehend, but this is why ongoing education is super important for culture. So it's essential to remember that within each of these cultural groups, there are vast diversities of beliefs, uh, practices, and individual experiences. So rather than stereotyping any one of these, the goal is to gain foundational understanding and then individualized care for each patient. Again, recognizing that, you know, maybe you don't have a huge Hispanic or Latinx population within your area of practice, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to meet someone from that group. So you want to at least have a general working knowledge of each of these. And then specifically, if you're working within a very um, identified group or culture, depending on where you live, you want to have an in-depth knowledge of, of what you might encounter. All right, so before we dive into specific culture competencies or topics, I do want to review religions um, most commonly found in the United States and predominantly throughout the world. Uh, this is because many of the culture uh, makeups are centered upon religious beliefs and backgrounds, especially based on the religion of the parent or the guardian that raised the patient. So instead of touching on each of these topics, um, each time that we discuss a specific culture or group, we'll do a general overview right now um, with these topics, and then whenever we run into it in the specific groups that we um, are really focusing in on, you've already got a general overview and understanding. So just recognize that if I say Latter-day Saint, you know what we've talked about from this portion of the, of the podcast, and we won't repeat it over and over again. So when providing mental health care to individuals from the Muslim community, so we're going to just go ahead and jump right in here. It's crucial to understand both the teachings of Islam and the cultural nuances that can influence a patient's perception of mental health. 
So let's go over some of the main teaching points and cultural differences related to Islam. Full disclosure here, and I know I say this in my review uh, videos, I am from Texas. I've worked very hard to get rid of my Texas accent. Um, I speak a couple of languages, so that's kind of helped me in that area. But I am not perfect when it comes to pronouncing words and sometimes medications. Um, I just want to put that out there. I try to say it every time, so that way, you know, every now and then I get a student um, that gets really upset that I pronounce something wrong. I am human, and so that will happen. Uh, and while I try to correct it as I go along, there may be a time where I don't. So please be forgiving and understand that we all say things differently, right? We're talking about culture and um, getting rid of our, uh, you know... Hard feelings towards uh, things that we don't sometimes understand, and while uh, I'm not perfect when it comes to speaking a lot of things, especially when it comes to culture, um, we're all trying here. So I'm going to do my best. If you want to give me some, some pointers on how I can do better in the future, I love feedback, and I will take it uh, graciously and with all the humility that I can muster. All right, so with that being said, we'll jump into this. I have tried to practice, especially in this particular area, because... Um, and this is important for you too, right? Like you don't want to be trying to say an individual's uh, culture language without at least attempting to say it correctly. So we'll try to practice that here today, and I would encourage you to do that in, um, in your own time so that way when you're discussing this with these individuals, they feel like you care enough to try hard to pronounce things the way that they want it to be pronounced, and so on and so forth. Okay, Enough about that. I, can you tell I'm sensitive about that topic? I, I really do think it's important to do your best to uh, clearly communicate um, so that way they understand how much you care about them. So anyway, moving on. All right, so we're talking about Islam, um, a Muslim community here. So the basic tenets of Islam. So it exists within five pillars of Islam. So those are their core practices all Muslims are expected to up uphold. Uh, so this includes... Um, Shada, I believe, um, saying that right, or faith, salat, prayer, uh, zakat, charity, sawam, um, this is fasting during Ramadan, and hajj, or pilgrimage to Mecca. So belief in one God. Muslims believe in a singular God, or Allah, in Arabic. Really interesting stuff. I think it's so fun to learn about other people's religions. Understanding of mental health within the Muslim community, this is a um, within the spiritual context. So mental health issues might sometimes be perceived as a test from God or the result of insufficient faith. So this perception can be both a source of resilience and in some cases a barrier to seeking treatment. We also hear of something called the jinn or the evil eye. Uh, in some cultures, this is believed to influence the supernatural entities or jinn of the evil eye, which might be perceived as uh, causes of mental illness, and that's J-I-N-N. -N. So the role of prayer and faith. So daily prayers and strong faith connections can be vital um, when considering their care, and this is uh, vital to their coping mechanisms. It's essential not to dismiss or underestimate the therapeutic value of religious rituals and beliefs. This is something that can, you know, belief in something and um, ritually participating and practicing it, you know, in religion, they call it miracles. In real life, um, it, you know, you may understand it to mean something else if you don't believe in that particular religion, but there is a huge power in that, and we do not want to... Um, you know, sideswipe that or don't give it its due respect because 
those things can be very powerful and those rituals and beliefs are important to that individual so it needs to be important to you as well family and community so within the muslim uh, community the family unit and the broader com community these often play central role in the lives of many muslims so family members might be actively involved in care and in decision making and can be a significant source of support Gender considerations. So modesty and gender roles can be significant in many Muslim cultures. Be aware of gender dynamics, such as ensuring same gender therapists, if possible, um, and when necessary, or being sensitive to issues like touch and maintaining eye contact. Also, you may have a situation where in your mind, you should be one-on-one -on -one with the patient, but because you're the opposite gender, um, you know, they're going to insist that the, the spouse is in the room with them. So you, you just need to be able to adapt to those cultural beliefs and um, requests because that's going to be huge in making sure that they understand that you understand where they're coming from. Okay, Ramadan and fasting. So be aware of month, the month of Ramadan when Muslims fast from dawn till dusk. This can impact medication schedules, right? Energy levels and overall mood. So that's, that, that plays right into mental health. Uh, especially when it comes to medications. If you have a medication that this patient needs to take food with, that's something that's going to have to be communicated and then try to come up with a pro an appropriate intervention together. Remember, respecting their cultural beliefs. So stigma and mental health within the Muslim community, as in many communities, um, there might be that stigma associated with mental illness. Um, and this can impact willingness to speak up or to seek help or to adhere to treatment. And it is very apparent within this population. Now, there is some cultural, uh, cultural variability. So Islam is practiced globally from Indonesia to Nigeria, from Turkey to the United States, with each culture having its interpretations, um, practices, and nuances within the religion. So, for example, a Muslim from South Asia, uh, a South Asian background, might have different cultural practices than a Muslim from North Africa, right? So understanding those differences. Alcohol and substances. So alcohol and certain drugs are prohibited in Islam, and this can impact substance use disorders and the uh, acceptability of certain treatments and medications. Then finally, we have end-of-life care. So there are specific considerations, rituals, and beliefs about death, dying, and the afterlife in Islam that might come into therapy, so especially when dealing with grief or terminal illnesses. So while providing mental health care to Muslim patients, it's beneficial to approach each uh, individual with an open mind, recognizing the diversity of the experiences and beliefs within the broader Muslim community, and then engaging in active listening, asking questions when unsure, and being respectful. Hit hint, make sure that you remember that word in answers that you're looking for, respectful view of religious and cultural practices. So lots to learn. As you can see, with each one of these religions, there's going to be a lot to talk about. So let's move on to the Jewish community. Uh, Jewish community is diverse with variations in religious practices, cultural traditions, and beliefs. So when providing mental health care to the Jewish individual, it's essential to understand these nuances to ensure cultural competent care. So let's go over some of the main points. So the diversity of Jewish movements. Um, Orthodox Judaism. So this adheres strictly to rabbinic interpretation of Jewish law and traditions. Conservative Judaism. This is a bridge between Orthodox and Reform Judaism. It maintains the traditional aspects while being open to some modern perspectives. Then we have Reform Judaism. This emphasizes the evolving nature of faith, focusing more on ethical aspects than on the ritual ritualistic ones. 
Okay, and then we have the Reconstructionalist Judaism. This views Judaism as a progressively evolving civilization, understanding that there are other groups and distinctions that we maybe didn't talk about within these um, specific diversities, uh, and their observances of the religion can vary widely within these categories. So let's talk about Sabbath and holidays. So Shabbat, or Sabbath, um, this is from Friday evening to Saturday evening. Uh, work, um, using uh, electronics, driving, and other activities might be avoided uh, by an observant um, individual within this population. So be aware of Jewish holidays as they can affect scheduling and might also be times of heightened emotional states. So an example of that would be reflection during Yom Kippur. So dietary laws or kashrut. So some Jewish observe, observe uh, dietary uh, restrictions, such as not mixing meat and dairy or consuming only kosher certified foods. This can be relevant if discussing nutrition, eating disorders, or medication that might have non-kosher ingredients. Family and community. So the Jewish community and family unit often play vital, very vital roles in the lives of many uh, Jewish individuals, providing social and emotional support. Life cycle events, so rituals such as barbat, uh, bar mitzvahs, um, weddings, uh, mourning practices, these can all be significant in an individual's life, and it may be relevant to therapeutic approaches. So make sure that you're remembering those uh, family and community um, rituals and uh, belief systems that go on. Life um, with you know, these events is going to change, and so being very cognizant of that information and how it's playing into their um, their mood, their well-being, and their situation. So we want to integrate that into their therapeutic um, planning. So history and persecution. We cannot talk about the Jewish population without identifying this and bringing this up. So be aware of the history of anti-Semitism and events like the Holocaust, which have profound generational impacts. Some Jewish individuals might have family stories or inherited trauma related to these events that you may need to dive into when you're in therapy. So remembering that history is super important with this population. The concept of God and spirituality. So views about God, about suffering and spirituality can vary widely and can be a source of both comfort, but it can also be a source of distress. Mental health stigma within the Jewish population, as with many communities we've talked about, stigma is there and um, can be super um, distressing for, for individuals within the Jewish population um, and their willingness to seek help. So end of life and me medical ethics, um, there are specific Jewish beliefs um, within this category and customs about death, dying, and medical ethics. For instance, the definition of death can be a point of contention in terms of brain death versus cardiac death, so on and so forth. Also about how the body is prepared and uh, you know, how quickly it needs to go into the ground, what can and cannot happen, uh, post-mortem, all things that need to be communicated. So if you're um, a provider that's working within an inpatient setting where you have a large Jewish community, you wanna be familiar with death, dying, and rituals within the Jewish population, as well with all the others. So language and literature, some Jewish individuals might uh, reference texts like the Torah, the Talmud, or the uh, Jewish writings and expression of their feelings and seeking guidance. Cultural Jews, so some individuals ju identify more with Jewish culture than religious aspects of Judaism. So they may celebrate holidays culturally, but not observe religious laws. All right, so you can see there's quite a difference in variation in how someone from the Jewish community might present 
understanding who they are, what they believe, what they practice um, is going to be super important as you go for uh, as you go forward in making a treatment plan for these individuals. Okay, let's move on to a big population here in the United States, and that's Christianity. And Christianity engulfs a large group of people um, and a large group of uh, religious um, sects or, or belief systems. So with its vast array of, de- of denominations and traditions, Christianity really does offer this rich tapestry of beliefs and practices. So when providing mental health care, understanding the nuances of patients' religious background, again, can help in delivering that culturally sensitive treatment, especially when you have a very diverse group of individuals like Christians that uh, practice very different things, even though they all believe, have a common belief in Jesus Christ. All right, so let's dive into each one of these groups. First, we're going to start with Protestantism. So main teaching points of Protestantism is is the emphasis on the Bible as a primary authority in matters of faith, justification of faith alone, and uh, the priesthood of all believers. So mental health considerations with Protestants. um, Some Protestant denominations may lean towards a strong belief in individual responsibility and the healing power of prayer, potentially leading to hesitancy in seeking those professional mental health support systems. All right, moving on to uh, Catholics or Catholicism. So main teaching points here is the papal authority, the significance of the seven sacraments, and the uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me, trans-substination um, doctrine. So mental health considerations within uh, Catholics. Uh, feelings of guilt and sin may sometimes be intensified by religious teachings, which can have implications for mental health. However, the Catholic Church generally supports the pursuit of mental health care when needed. Baptists. So Baptist um, main teaching points here is going to be the adult baptism based on personal faith, so believer's baptism, the autonomy of the local church, and the separation of church and state. So mental health considerations for Baptists, this is strong community ties, can be both a support system and a source of pressure. So personal faith experiences may also play into a significant role into an individual's self-worth and identity. Moving on to the Latter-day Saint or Mormonism, um, they, they do prefer to go by Latter-day Saint over Mormons. So one of the main teaching points here is additional scriptures like the Book of Mormon, modern-day prophecy, and the unique concept of God and spiritual potential. So mental health considerations, this is a strong community bond. Um, and they also have strong community expectations. So the significance of family roles and the potential stigma around issues like substance use or premarital relations, um, this can influence a person's mental health dynamics. Uh, so we, we want to be super careful. And, and let's go ahead and point out, um, I know we're going to talk about LGBTQ later, but many LGBTQ patients that come from a very Christian background or Muslim or Jewish background are going to uh, potentially have conflicts within family, so we want to make sure that that's understood um, with respect to religious beliefs. Next up, we have Anglicanism. So the main teaching points here is it's the middle way between Protestantism and Catholicism. So the significance of the Book of Common Prayer and the Episcopal governance is uh, taught within this uh, group. Mental health considerations, while Anglicanism tends to be open to modern um, psychology and therapy, individual beliefs can vary widely. The church's um, sacramental aspects might be sources of comfort for some, so just things to consider when dealing with this particular group as well.
So general considerations for mental health care uh, when talking about the uh, Christian community, guilt and sin. For some Christians, feelings of guilt, sin, and divine punishment can exasperate uh, mental health issues. Prayer and faith healing. So some might prioritize spiritual practices or faith healing over professional mental health care. Community and stigma. Now this is a close-knit church community, right? And often, often is the case. And this can offer support, but it may also inadvertently foster stigma around the mental health challenges. As far as end-of-life care is concerned, beliefs about the afterlife, salvation, and the sanctity of life can influence decisions and feelings about death and dying. Pastoral counseling, so some might offer or prefer to uh, supplement therapy with pastoral counseling or, you know, with their bishop, with their uh, priest or what have you. It's helpful to understand the role of religious leaders in that individual's life. And then finally, the role of rituals and sacraments. So recognizing the therapeutic potential of rituals and sacraments, how this can be beneficial in that holistic care. So it is essential for mental health professionals like the PMHMP to approach Christian patients again with that open mind, devoid of assumptions, asking patients about their personal beliefs and then their practices, and then integrating this into understanding their care, creating a joint therapeutic plan, and then all of this can therefore greatly impact and improve the therapeutic relationship and outcome. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the different cultures that you may encounter in your mental health practice. So cultural competence for the Hispanic Latinx community. We're going to start there. So this, and, and again, remember, we've already talked about religion, so we'll, I'll just mention it briefly if it pertains to a certain group, which most of these it will. Uh, if you need to go back and review some of those religious aspects, go ahead and do that um, as you listen to the podcast. So starting again with the Hispanic Latinx community, this entails understanding and respecting their diverse beliefs, values, traditions, and practices. So let's talk about some of the specifics, language and communication. An example of this would be many Hispanic Latinx patients may be more comfortable speaking in Spanish. So utilizing uh, translation services or bilingual staff can facilitate effective communication. Family and social structures. So an example would be uh, familismo. This is a cultural value emphasizing the importance of family over the individual. A patient might prioritize family options and opinions over medical decisions or psychiatric um, uh, decisions. So health beliefs and practices. So some might use traditional or home remedies like um, aloe vera, for example, is one. Uh, sabala for skin problems or manzilla uh, chamomile for digestion and relaxation. Again, not fluent in Spanish. If this were in Portuguese, I would have a much easier way, but you get, you get the picture here. Um, some of these home remedies uh, tend to be common within the Hispanic Latinx community. So religion and spirituality. So a significant portion of the Hispanic Latinx community is Catholic. So this is definitely going to influence thoughts about birth, death, conception, and end-of-life decisions. Dietary habits. Now, traditionally, diets may be rich in beans, rice, tortillas, and, refri and fried foods, and refried foods. So understanding these can help in nutritional counseling, especially if you have a patient with uh, some type of eating disorder. Or, you know, on medications like antipsychotics, where diet is going to play a huge part in their treatment plan. So views on healthcare, uh, specifically, some might have a uh, 
a fatalistic view of health, right? Believing illnesses are this result of fate or divine will, which can then affect preventative and care attitudes. There's a cultural understanding known as, um, make sure I can say this right, manana. Um, so this means tomorrow, okay? So M-A-N-A-N, tomorrow syndrome. Suggesting a more flexible approach to time, this might influence punctuality for appointments. So there are some socioeconomic factors that we have to consider within the Hispanic Latinx community. Immigrant or undocumented status can affect access to health care. Fear of deportation or mistrust in institutions. Definitely need to be aware of that. So gender roles, there is this um, sense of machismo or um, this traditional gender of male emphasizing male dominance um, and female virtue, respectively. So this can influence health, uh, health behaviors and then communication dynamics as well. So cultural stigma, it might play, you know, it, it's going to play to their hesitancy. They're going to be more hesitant to seek mental health services. Um, this is because of concepts like uh, ner um, nervios or nerves might be used to describe physiological distress instead of actually talking about the psychological and physiological issues that are going on with this patient. So, um, you know, listening to those cue words, are they talking about their nerves as in nervios as, as their culture, or are they trying to communicate in some way and you need to be able to, to pick up on those cues to know that, hey, we're talking about uh, physiological distress right now. All right, end-of-life care. The family might prefer not to tell an elderly person about the terminal diagnosis, so believing it could cause unnecessary distress on the patient. So open communication, helping them understand dialogues, helping them understand how really it is, it's important for the patient to know what's going on, not only in their care, but in their prognosis, and helping uh, this community understand that and, and utilize it so that the patient their family members always feel informed and, you know, know what's going on. And then in providing them support, you know, a lot of times they're just afraid that they won't know how to react to the news. Uh, so giving them education on how to better prepare the loved one for end of life is going to be vitally important. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the cultural competency for the African-American community. Now, this does require a deep understanding of both historical and current factors influencing health and well-being of the African-American pops. So here are some specific topics that we're going to talk about, you know, that history and trust, family, uh, social aspect and structure, religion and spirituality. So let's go ahead and start there um, with that history and trust. So historical events like the Tuskegee syphilis study. This has left a legacy of mistrust towards medical institutions, impacting participation in research and views on care. This is especially um, true today because we have so much more information available on the internet and through social media. So, you know, they might not have even heard of certain situations that happened so many years ago back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. But today, there's a lot of information, and they're really learning about their history and about things that have happened to them and their, um, you know, their ancestors. So we want to make sure that we understand that viewpoint as we start to deliver care. Family and social structure. So an example would be the African-American family unit might include extended family members. A grandmother, for instance, she may play a significant role in family decisions. Religion and spirituality. The church often plays a central role in African-American communities. Belief may influence these views on illnesses, healing, and end-of-life care. 
mental health care, and stigma. So some within this community may use traditional remedies or believe in folk illnesses. These are home remedies that might be preferred over modern medicine in some cases. Dietary habits for this population. Traditional diets may include soul food, which can be high in fats and sugars. Understanding these, obviously, are going to help in your nutritional counseling. So views on health care. Some African Americans might prioritize prayer or faith, um, this type of, of healing, before seeking medical intervention. Direct eye contact might not always be a sign of inattentiveness or respect. In some contexts, it could be perceived as confrontational. So you want to make sure that you're reading those cues so that you understand how this patient is communicating with you. That way you build on the relationship instead of tearing it down. Just, just because it's not normally how somebody would, would um, you know, react in eye contact situations, it may be a population situation. And so you've got to be able to really read the room with that and make sure that you're, you're looking at the patient as a whole instead of just making assumptions based on something like a communication style. Socioeconomic factors. So obviously we're going to talk about some health disparities, often rooted in systemic racism. This can affect access to care, leading to mistrust or skepticism towards health care providers. With regard to mental health in general, um, issues might be underreported due to the stigma that's uh, discussed in cultural terms like feeling quote, way down, close quote, or something like that. Uh, this is going to be a common theme throughout many of these um, groups that we talk about stigma. Um, obviously, it's been a part of our culture and our society in the United States for a really long time, especially when you consider these specialty populations. So end-of-life care discussions, um, they might avoid or... Um, really approach the subject a little differently with a preference for family members to make decisions rather than themselves with their caregiver. So gender roles and expectations, concepts like strong black woman or strong black man or preferring a black provider, this can influence health behaviors, perceptions of vulnerability, and willingness to seek help. So it's okay for your patient to have um, an expectation of what they want in their provider, but if it's not available, you want to approach it delicately and sensitively, making sure that they understand that while their um, expectations and requests are important, you know, it may, not, it may not be available at that time. So you want to do your best to make them feel comfortable. And again, this goes with other groups as well. Um, it, it's just remembering their culture, remembering their history, and understanding why they may be... Um, sensitive to certain certain gender roles or and, and other expectations when it comes to to the provider that's giving them their care uh, there is nothing wrong with that uh, but if it's not available it's not available and we still want them to know that their care is needed and that we want to give them their care and help them feel comfortable and maybe break that barrier so that way they accept your help even though you might not fit the specific gender role or um, you know expectation that they're looking for in their provider. And that's always a good thing. Everybody's learning to work together and become, you know, more comfortable within that idea. So helping them with that through conversation and building that uh, critical relationship uh, through um, mutual understanding and education. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the cultural competence for the Native American or the indigenous community and understanding what rich diversity among the tribes and nations and groups there is 
have to consider, obviously, their unique history here in the United States, their belief systems, and their individual practices. So historical trauma, forced relocations, right? Boarding schools and other historical events that have left profound impacts on the health and trust of institutions within the United States. Definitely going to play into how they seek and um, accept mental health care. Families and tribal structures going to be a very important concept for you to understand. Decisions by, might be made collectively within the group, with elders often holding significant influence in health and well-being matters. Religion and spirituality, are these practices are very important to this, um, to this population, like sweat lodges, uh, sweat lodge ceremonies um, are often used, or uh, smudging might be used for healing and purification. Health benefits and practices, uh, traditional healers such as medicine men or women might be consulted in conjunction with Western medicine. Traditional diets might emphasize local seasonal foods like uh, maize or bison, which hold cultural and health significance. Some might perceive illness as an imbalance and seek holistic treatments um, encompassing the mind, the body, and the spirit. Communication styles is very important within this population. Silence might be valued, and taking one's time to respond can give a sign of respect and consideration instead of you know, just feeling like they're ignoring you or not understanding you. There, there's power in silence, and uh, this population understands that. So recognizing that and not being thrown off by it, but using that to understand that this person is really thinking about what you're saying. So socioeconomic factors that come into play with the indigenous or um, uh, Native Americans are many reservations face challenges like poverty and limited access to health care. And this is absolutely going to influence the health outcomes and their attitudes towards health care. Mental health specifically might be understood in the terms of harmony with nature, their ancestors, and their community. So disruption in this harmony could lead to distress, which manifests in mental health. End-of-life care rituals um, and customs about death and dying and afterlife can widely uh, vary among the different tribes and, and can influence that preference for end-of-life care. And then you've got to understand their respect for nature and the land. This makes up a huge part of their culture. The land can hold deep spiritual significance. So displacement or environmental degradation can have a profound health and psychological impact uh, for the indigenous and Native American populations. All right, let's move on to the Asian community, and this requires recognizing, again, those vast diversity within uh, this category. Asia encompasses a multitude of ethnicities, religions, languages, and histories. So let's uh, identify some of those here with language and communication. So many Asians come from non-English speaking backgrounds. Offering translation services can aid in effective communication within the POP. And family plays a huge role. So we have this concept of filial piety, which is the virtue of exhibiting the proper love and respect for one's parents, their elders, or ancestors. So elders may definitely play a key role in medical decisions within the Asian community. Religion and spirituality, this includes Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, Islam, and other religious influences that really shape their health beliefs and practices and again, this is going to be found throughout many diverse communities within the Asian population. So understanding who your patient is, their specific community background, and then incorporating those religious beliefs and practices into their holistic care is going to be vital. 
dietary habits. Some might observe these dietary restrictions such as halal or vegetarian diets. And this is, again, based on religious and cultural beliefs. So some examples of healthcare um, visions and, and um, thoughts include health issues might be stigmatized, leading to an underreporting, and then preference for holistic or community-based solutions as opposed to a really you know s- scheduled and rigorous um, health outlook and uh, treatment plan that sometimes we see within Western societies. Communication style, direct confrontation might be avoided um, to maintain harmony within the relationship. So nonverbal cues can be significant in conveying those feelings and concerns. First-generation immigrants might face uh, barriers like language, access to health care, or discrimination, which is obviously going to affect their overall health experience. Sometimes within the culture, we hear of something called saving face, and this uh, might make individuals hesitant to discuss personal or family mental health issues. So this can definitely be a barrier to mental health care. Then with end-of-life care, in some Asian cultures, discussing death is, is considered taboo. So families might prefer to shield terminally ill patients and members of their family from a prognosis, which this is obviously a bad thing for that individual. They need to be able to um, you know, think through that, that disease and figure out the best way to, to go about their, their end-of-life care. So really communicating and over-communicating information to the family um, in, in many cases so that the patient is instructed and um, that they, they get the information that they need for their end-of-life care is, is important. And so it's, it's, going to, it's going to require you to really um, communicate effectively to family members within the Asian culture. Gender roles and expectations. So traditional roles might influence health behaviors like women deferring their, their needs to prioritize the family. So uh, definitely something you want to consider when trying to figure out what the best option is for them moving forward. We got to take into consideration those uh, traditional roles. So Jewish community, um, this, this is a rich tapestry. I mean, I don't know a better, I don't know if there's a better way to put it. It's just really rich in tradition and belief and practice and histories, and it shapes that Jewish identity. So religious observance and diversity includes Judaism, has various denominations like Orthodox, conservative reform, and Reconstructionist, right? So each one of these are going to have different levels of observance and interpretations about their religious laws. So we do definitely see dietary um, considerations within the Jewish population. So many observant Jews follow a kosher diet and kosher dietary laws. So this will dictate certain foods and food preparations and combinations to avoid, like mixing dairy with meat. Uh, Sabbath or Sabbat and uh, other festivals that are observed. So on Shabbat, which is from Friday evening to Saturday evening, and Jewish holidays, um, certain activities, including using electricity or driving, might be prohibited for observant Jews. So as with some of the other groups we've already talked about, Jewish communities may have modesty that comes into play with how they present themselves and how they interact with other, um, other groups and with you as a provider. So some observant Jew women um, may wear skirts and long sleeves and cover their hair after marriage, while some men may wear a yarmulke or other head covering. Medical ethics for this population, questions about end-of-life care, organ donation, or other genetic testing might be approached through the lens of the Jewish law and ethics. So whether or not that comes into play with uh, mental health care, it may, because we do talk about genetics in mental health. Um, 
Obviously, we need to have a better understanding of what they believe in terms of their medical ethics in order to proceed with them. So um, birth and circumcision, this is, this is also an area um, that often gets brought up uh, in care, especially with younger um, individuals in the Jewish population when they're trying to figure out who they are and how they fit into their, their culture um, and how they want to pre represent themselves today based on modern ideas, but also keep in line with some of their thoughts and uh, traditions of their, of their parents and their, and their grandparents. So it is, again, good to have a solid basis of understanding when dealing with each of these specific populations. So on the eighth day after birth, many Jewish boys undergo a religious circumcision ceremony, which has religious and communal significance. Very important to understand where they're coming from with that. So let's talk about end-of-life practices for the Jewish community. Traditionally, Jewish law emphasizes the sanctity of life. Practices surrounding death, burial, and mourning, like uh, sitting shiva, are very important. In some tight-knit Jewish communities, there may be um, some pretty, pretty strong stigma around discussing mental health, which can influence treatment-seeking behaviors. So one big thing to remember with this population is their history of persecution. Awareness of historical traumas like the Holocaust is essential um, as it, it's left a, a profound impact, right, on, on these Jewish families and their communities. So while the individual that you're caring for might not have lived during that time, it is going to be a part of who they are um, in many cases. So we want to be very sensitive to that and understand where they're coming from in that context. So uh, many Jewish individuals speak the language of their residing country, and in this instance here in the United States, uh, they, they speak English, but some might be fluent in Hebrew, Yiddish, or other Jewish languages, uh, influencing the way they're able to communicate. So again, making sure that we're offering them appropriate services if they do not speak the language that you are presenting to them in therapy. Okay, and finally for this group, let's talk about some principles or views on healthcare. One of the big ones is the principle of a pekuaf nafesh. This prioritizes the sanctity of life, often overruling other religious commandments and then influencing medical decisions. And this is, this is not only just for medical care that you would receive from a primary care provider or surgeon. This also takes into account the mental health care of the individual as well. So, Big important things that we need to remember, you're not going to be able to understand everything within the Jewish um, realm of laws, rules, regulations, and beliefs. It's, it's pretty vast. So if you are serving in a community with a large population, you're going to want to reach out to local community leaders and other local um, providers that may see them more on a daily basis that you're starting to get into. So that way you can really understand what the local population believes and how they are approaching their physical and mental health care in order to provide the most comprehensive health care plan for them. Okay, now we're going to move on to another community that is rich in history and belief, and that is the Islamic community. And this involves recognizing the depth and breadth of traditions, beliefs, and practices that shape Muslim identities. So let's go over some of the um, main topic areas within this community. First is going to be the five pillars of Islam. These are the foundational acts of worship, which include declaration of faith, daily prayer, fasting during Ramadan, almsgiving, and then that final pilgrimage to Mecca. Some of the dietary laws, um, halal and haram, Muslims observe dietary rules where consuming only halal or permissible foods. Pork and alcohol are haram or are forbidden foods. Dress in modesty, many Muslim women wear the hijab or a headscarf 
or other modest clothing, where men might also dress modestly to avoid wearing gold or other flashy, what we would consider flashy things within our communities. So prayer, absorbent Muslims pray five times a day facing Mecca. Prayer times are spread throughout the day, affecting daily schedules. Obviously, that's going to be something you want to consider um, whenever you're trying to schedule your patient or, you know, if there's no other time and they have to have prayer during that time, providing them an opportunity um, in a um, respectful way in order for them to uh, complete their prayer as per their religion. Fasting. So during Ramadan, Muslims fast for da- from dawn until sunset, refraining from eating, drinking, and other specific actions. This could greatly affect um, certain medications that you give them, but whether or not that medication has to be taken at a certain time and has to be taken with or without food. So fasting definitely needs to be considered when dealing with the uh, Muslim or Islamic community. Okay, medical ethics. So concerns about end-of-life care, organ donation, or medical procedures might be approached uh, considering these Islamic teachings. Again, they're going to be vast, so you've got to get really specific. But to, to move forward here, as you're, as you're going through your understanding and trying to figure out, okay, if this shows up on a question, a test question, you have to consider medical ethics. So if that is a part of you know the question itself, you want to, what do we want to do? We want to respect, right? So we're going to respect those medical ethics and then find out what needs to be done in order to align with end-of-life care. Gender interactions, this is a big one. So some Muslims might prefer gender-segregated settings or may avoid physical contact with non-related members of the opposite gender. So if you're a male and you have a female uh, member of the Muslim or Islamic community and they do not want to be in the same room with you or you have to have their, their husband or their counterpart or their partner in the room with you, these are things that you're going to want to accommodate to the best of your ability, making sure that it aligns with their, their beliefs. Mental health concerns might be approached with a a combination of spiritual and medical interventions, okay? So some might consult religious leaders for guidance while others are going to heavily rely on you as the quote-unquote authority. And so uh, you're going to want to approach that in a very respectful way. End-of-life practices, Islamic practices around death include quick burials and specific rituals like uh, the ritual of purification. So this could come into play when you're dealing with somebody who's having a hard time with grief, uh, or maybe you're a family member. You have a family member who who doesn't necessarily believe in these practices anymore, and and they need time to plan the funeral, and they are having a hard time understanding and comprehending why parents may be moving forward so quickly, and and you're going to have to be able to talk with them through that, understand the practices of their parents, and then what you can do to help get them through that grief um, and depressive state fully understanding that they, they might not be in line with their traditions, but we still need to uh, approach it keeping those traditions in mind because it's obviously making a big part of their circumstance and their situation. Arabic holds uh, religious significance. It is the, the language of the Quran. So greetings um, are going to be different. They're gonna, I, I won't try to pronounce things in Arabic. Uh, I, I'm not going to pretend like I know, I know how to do that. But there, there is a, a traditional saying like, peace be unto you. Things like this are common. So uh, learning, their, learning the way that they communicate, learning the way that they introduce themselves and expect you to be um, receptive and then give it back obviously going to be super important for this population as well. So be, be familiar with the language and communication styles of the patient that you're dealing with. And then finally, seeking medical treatment is encouraged in Islam, but practice should be, practices should respect Islamic teachings. So for instance, medications containing alcohol might need to be avoided. 
so much that we could talk about. It's, it's very interesting. If you're not part of this um, community, if you're not um, Islamic or you're not Muslim, there's a really, some really great things to learn uh, from, from these individuals. And again, just like we talked about with the Jewish population, if you're not a part of that organization or community, but you treat a lot of people based on your, um, you know, where, you're, where you're practicing or where you live, reach out, find others within the community that have understanding and learn. It's all about getting educated and meeting these uh, patients and their families at their level. That is cultural care. That is respectful care. That is going to be the way you answer these questions. Next up, we're going to talk about South Asian communities. I told you there's a lot of information in this podcast because there's just so many uh, different communities, religions, and organizations that people, you know, associate themselves with. So if you need to take a break, please take a break. I know it's a lot of information and we're just barely skimming the surface here. But the South Asian community, this, this community definitely requires you to understand their, their culture, religion, and language um, and their, their history of, of war. And, you know, there's just so much. And it's because we cover such a large area. These are places like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Bhutan and the Maldives. So what do we need to know about them? Well, again, only scratching the surface here, but obviously there's going to be a huge religious diversity. So South Asia is home to a variety of religions, and we've talked about a lot of them already, but Hinduism, uh, Islam, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, uh, a lot of other ones, but those are some of the big ones that we've already discussed. And each has its own unique beliefs and practices, and this can greatly impact their healthcare and mental health decisions. There are numerous languages and dialects spoken in South Asia, such as what we just talked about, Hindu, uh, Bengali, Punjabi, uh, Tamil, and many, many more. Understanding the language nuances and um, potentially needing translation services, these are all going to help aid in communication. If your organization doesn't have communication services, then you are going to need to be that representative that um, advocates for ensuring that you're able to properly communicate and you mean you're going to have to pass that up the chain of command within your within your group so that way services appropriate for that individual and their culture are um, taken care of. So dietary practices, many South Asians are vegetarians due to religious and cultural reasons. Others have dietary restrictions such as halal, which we just talked about, or um, uh, avoiding beef. So some, some similar ones that we just said during um, the the uh, Muslim or Islamic um, section. The family, especially extended family, this plays a vital role in decision-making, including healthcare-related decisions. Elders often hold significant influence within South Asian communities. Okay, um, views on medicine, uh, traditional medicine uh, systems in South Asia. Some individuals may utilize um, Practices that are that are uh, with their uh, religious leaders or their um, community leaders. So it may not be what we consider uh, Western medicine or traditional um, for the United States. But for many in this group, they'll they'll turn to them first. They'll have their traditions, but then they'll also incorporate some of the Western uh, beliefs and practices as well. So it is it can be uh, very mixed within the Asian community, um, South Asian community. So South Asians might prioritize home remedies and um, seek advice from those elders before consulting with you as the healthcare provider, but they will do it oftentimes. They, they just turn to their um, personal and traditional beliefs first. So South Asians um, view mental health issues 
based on uh, you know stigma ideas. I, I think that's pretty common with each one of the groups that we've talked about. So they're not openly discussing uh, mental health concerns within this community. And this obviously is going to influence their ability to go out and seek mental health care. Traditional gender roles can influence health-seeking behaviors, with women sometimes prioritizing the family health over their own health. Observances um, for religious uh, festivals and rituals can affect daily routines, and um, so you have to take that in into consideration whenever you're putting together their, their care plans based on the time of year that it is and what ritual practices they participate in. Uh, talking about communication styles, direct confrontation might be avoided in favor of maintaining harmony. So respectful gestures like not pointing uh, feet at somebody, at somebody this is going to be important. So uh, there, there are some gesture factors that go into place with the South, South Asian population. All right, finally, socioeconomic and uh, migration factors. This speaks directly to the experiences of first-generation immigrants in terms of language barriers, adaption stress, and potential discrimination. Uh, and this obviously affects the impact of overall health and well-being of the, of the individual. So we've got to consider those experiences of the immigrant population, in this case for the South Asian, but really for any immigrant population. Um, all of those uh, language barriers, adaptation stress, and potential discrimination play a key factor in their ability to get and maintain quality health care and mental health care. Next, we have Middle Eastern North African communities. So while Islam is the predominant religion, there is Christianity, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Baha'i and others that are also practiced within the region. And then understanding those religious nuances and holidays, again, are going to be essential. We've, we've covered most of those already. Arabic is widely spoken, but other languages like Berber, Kurdish, Persian, Turkish, and others are also utilized in the region. Many also use French or English due to colonial influences. The family is paramount, with extended family members often involved in decision-making processes, especially regarding health-related and well-being issues. Many women wear the hijab or other modest clothing for religious reasons, as well as men may uh, wear turbans. Respecting these choices, especially in healthcare, is going to be vital to establishing that therapeutic um, relationship. So halal dietary practices are common due to Islamic principles. Some may abstain from alcohol or other substances based on those religious beliefs. There's a strong reliance on both modern medicine and traditional remedies. So herbal treatments, cupping, and other traditional practices can also be utilized. In some conservative areas, interactions between unrelated men and women might be limited, and this can impact healthcare delivery, especially in intimate or sensitive treatment options. Mental health is often stigmatized, um, many preferring to discuss these issues within the family unit itself or with their religious leaders as opposed to seeking care from a formal uh, treatment facility. Some of the historical and political content we need to remember and, and put it into context is understanding the impacts of war, migration, colonization, and political instability within the Middle Eastern and North African countries. This is going to help address potential trauma or displacement-related issues. Islamic beliefs, again, uh, remember we talked about earlier, um, death, dying, and afterlife thoughts can influence preferences around end-of-life care or understanding depression or trauma-focused therapy options, as well as incorporating organ donation for family members and funeral practices. A lot of um, very specific 
culture and religious related uh, situations evolving, uh, revolving around end of life care. All right, and then finally, we have socioeconomic factors. There are disparities in education, economic opportunities, and access to health care, especially when considering displaced or refugee populations, obviously going to influence how they get their care. Okay, now we're going to go beyond just the North African community and talk about Africa in general. Uh, some odd 54 countries, very diverse, uh, lots of traditions, lots of religions. Each of, the, each of them have their own thoughts and ideas and religious beliefs and cultural beliefs. And while Christianity and Islam are predominant, many also follow indigenous African religions or combine them into um, other belief systems. So practices within these religions can impact that health care. But really often, it's like this onion layer effect, right? Um, so when dealing with this population, those health uh, histories and really diving into their social and economic backgrounds is going to be super important within the African community. And we're seeing lots and lots of um, groups here in the United States that are coming together and living in specific regions of the U.S. So it's obviously going to be super important if you're within that area to understand where they come from. So Africa is home to over 2,000 languages and dialects, uh, Swahili, um, I mean, there's just so many of them. So if you need it, you got to seek out the services to help communicate this information. Remember, on the test questions, um, that's going to be a key factor. If they don't speak the, the, the language, if they don't speak English and you're an English speaker, you have to get some type of formal and um, recognized translation services in order to communicate and receive communication effectively and appropriately. Herbal remedies, spiritual healers, ancestral practices, the, these all play crucial roles in healthcare um, for many Africans, but they also take into account Western medicine as well. So colonial histories, these do affect these Western medicine ideas or institutions. And so it becomes more embedded with some of these traditional um, tribal and, and other, uh, you know, background information that they may have from families passed down from generation to generation. But because of, of pre or because of post-colonial impacts, Western medicine has been integrated into uh, many of their cultures and traditions. So in many African cultures, the community and extended family, again, play a vital role in that decision-making process. And so we often have to include them um, in that process to make the patient as comfortable as possible. But remembering we have to do it with, with the idea of the, the best care possible, the most appropriate care for that patient, and then helping to explain that to them. Traditional gender roles can influence health-seeking behaviors, access to education, and decision-making within the family. Respect for elders and authority figures is paramount within many of the African cultures, and this is going to uh, really affect the decision-making and communication processes and dynamics. Some communities might have specific dietary customs or restrictions based on religious and cultural beliefs, and then uh, rituals like initiation ceremonies, weddings, and uh, different funeral practices also have, have health implications and cultural significance. So mental health issues might be addressed within the family or community or through traditional healers. Um, and uh, given Africa's vast diversity, understanding those, those traditional healing practices and then trying to figure out a way to, to incorporate your own practice while also respecting that individual's uh, rights, beliefs, and wants is going to be super important.
All right, now we're going to move on to European community. Um, now, the European community is obviously going to be a larger group of what we deal with here in the United States, uh, depending on whether or not they're, they're recent um, over to the U.S. or if we're talking about longstanding traditions within families that have been in the United States for generations um, based on our history. So while Christianity and its various denominations like Catholicism, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, they're prevalent within the, the European communities. There are also significant Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, and secular communities within the European population as well. So we have to respect those religions. We've said that so many times today. If you, if you walk away from here knowing anything, it's, you, you just have to do what? You have to respect. It's always about looking for that word respect in your answer. So Europe, it's, it's home to many languages, including English, uh, French, Spanish, German, Russian, tons of others, um, and each one of them have different dialects and cultural nuances that are associated with the language. So making sure that you're offering them the appropriate uh, language opportunities and help services is going to be important. Uh, world wars have influenced how um, Europeans um, you know, deal with each other, even with, within very close borders, and then especially within the United States. Uh, there's the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, there's just so many cultural and um, psychological impacts that can influence attitudes and beliefs as it pertains to historical contexts within the European population. So Mediterranean diet emphasizes olive oil and fresh vegetables, while Nordic diets might focus more on fish and whole grains. And then um, understanding these dietary considerations, are, they're going to come into play when prescribing certain medications. So need to be uh, fairly familiar with with, their, with certain diet uh, practices. Many European countries have universal healthcare systems which can influence an individual's expectations with the experiences that they're gonna have with healthcare here in the United States. That's gonna be a very important form of communication and education topic points. Attitudes towards topics like reproductive health, um, LGBTQ plus rights or end of life care it's just so different um, when you when you switch between the different European communities and populations. So find out what you're dealing with, what group that you have, what religious practices they have, take into consideration the regional I issues and um, beliefs, and then you know really focus it in on what that individual wants and then move forward. So in some cultures, family plays central role in decision making, while other um, while other cultures within the European population, it's totally autonomous. It's individual autonomy, and that becomes something that's highly valued over, you know, involving family members and others. So again, ask your patient, what do they prefer? And then respect that. Attitudes towards mental health vary. Um, some countries within uh, Europe are very open about discussing their mental health issues. Um, and then you have some countries that are going to be very standoffish about it and are, are concerned with that stigma that's still associated with it. Again, a lot of that has to do with the, uh, the history and the wars that have been fought within particular areas. Okay, so let's go on to Pacific Islander uh, communities. So um, this is going to include um, the Polynesian communities, uh, Melanesia, Micronesia, so this, this Pacific Islander area. Um, the land um, or sea, these are deeply interconnected with, within uh, these individuals' identities, that, that feeling of being connected to their island and, and to, the, to the ocean and sea that surround them. 
Um, this is going to have a lot to do with their, their identity and their spiritual well-being and their just general well-being overall. And so you've got to recognize that when you're, when you're talking with them and helping them understand their connection between the land and the sea. So many Pacific Islanders have holistic views of health, intertwining physical, spiritual, uh, community well-being, Traditional healers and practices may be consulted alongside you as a modern medicine um, caregiver. The extended family, um, especially within the Samoan population, play a central role in decision-making support. Um, so a lot of times you're going to have to incorporate them and walk right alongside with them and the patient when trying to come up with the best treatment plan. So while many uh, Pacific Islanders do speak English, native languages such as Tongan, Tahitian, uh, these are also spoken, uh, respecting that communication practice and offering those services if they feel more comfortable speaking in their native language or the language that they're most you know, familiar with. Christianity is widely practiced within the Pacific Islanders, um, strong community church ties. This can influence views um, on days like Sunday or other um, religious observances or church-going times, uh, dietary practices associated with this, as well as end-of-life care. So um, remember, go back to those uh, Christianity um, section of the, of the podcast to identify any specific things that you need to be aware of, but um, very, very heavily influenced by uh, Christianity. The legacy of being great navigators and voyagers is a point of pride and has cultural implications for learning, resilience, and connection to ancestors. So want to want to make sure that if we can to incorporate that into their care plans. Um, you're going to see a lot of tattoos and body art, uh, especially within the Samoan population. So these carry deep cultural and personal significance. This represents their identity, their lineage, their stories. You may be able to get a lot more history out of this individual when you talk to them about their tattoos or their body art than they would just speaking to you directly and you asking them, you know, very targeted questions. Explore their history, explore their art, see what you can get from them by um, looking at their representation on, on the, the art on their skin. Very, very cool stories that come out of that. Mental health issues might be addressed within the family or community first, and they are, there may be a preference to discuss challenges with the community or their elders before they discuss it with a, um, a caregiver. Traditional diets include root vegetables, uh, seafood, and fruits. And then ceremonies um, like their first haircut in some Samoan families or community gatherings for specific life milestones. These are all part of their um, rites of passage and, and personal celebrations and group celebrations. And then finally, we have the colonial and post-colonial impacts. So these legacies of colonization, uh, nuclear testing, for example, um, was taking place in, within these areas. Forced migrations in some Pacific islands, these have had long-lasting health and psychological impacts, um, things that need to be considered when dealing with and practicing with Pacific Islander population. All right, then we have the Caribbean community. Can you see? I mean, there's just so many. They go on and on and on, but we see so many of these populations now in the United States. So uh, the Caribbean community, rich blend of indigenous, African, European, Indian, and Chinese influences, among others. There's also others. Uh, so this really shapes this region. Uh, so the legacy of colonization, transatlantic slave trade, um, identified labor profoundly shaped this Caribbean social and cultural fabric and lifestyle. So we've got to recognize that history, um, and then if we need to address any generational trauma associated with it, um, 
it's just, it's just so interesting, right? You're, you're going you're gonna to see some of these patients, and you may not even realize that you have to address some of these generational traumas. But as we dive, especially the older um, members of the generation, but as you start to you know, untwine that history and really see what's going on there, these are things that you do have to consider when creating their plans. So the Caribbean hosts um, various religions, including Christianity, um, Hinduism, Islam, indigenous spiritual practices. So all of these, again, carry those um, dietary practices, religious beliefs, um, and um, special holidays, whatever it may be, we got to take it into consideration. And now while English is, is often spoken, there are significant Spanish, French, uh, Dutch, Creole-speaking populations they're going to have a lot of different nuances and, um, and uh, you know, accents that are used. So this can be somewhat difficult to understand sometimes. Um, you know, the Jamaican population uh, is one that comes to mind. So if, if you aren't clearly hearing what they're saying, you have to be, you know, very cognizant of that and say, you know what, let's, let's clear this up. Is there, you know, let's find a service that we can utilize, or if a family member is there that's able to communicate better in English, um, or, you know, maybe they're everybody speaking English, but we're just not understanding it clearly to re educate us or educate us for the first time about certain dialects, about certain, um, you know, ways that they print that they uh, express sentences that just may at, at first hearing be a little different for us, but can be easily explained. So, just look, just look for those communication and language um, uh, situations to help you communicate better with the patient. All right, so many in the Caribbean, um, they're going to they're gonna utilize herbal remedies and traditional practices alongside or in place of Western medicine. Bush medicine, for example, in the Bahamas, uh, for instance, this is going to utilize native plants for healing as opposed to more traditional medications um, uh, ther or therapies that we would often recommend first. All right, festivals and celebrations, um, events like Carnival in Trinidad, um, there's uh, different crop celebrations and festivals that go on, uh, deep cultural um, and historical influences, music and dance as well. So there's lots of uh, um, music festivals and genres such as reggae and soca, merengue, um, limbo comes from this as well. So all of this is integral to the Caribbean lifestyle and culture. And oftentimes they have deeper meanings uh, to the dances and the cultural aspects themselves. So sometimes if you've got a patient that's really into this, we got to explore it so we can understand what they're expressing and what they're thinking by way of their dance and music interpretations. Gender and sexuality. So while there is growing acceptance of the LGBTQ plus rights in some Caribbean nations, Others might have very conservative views, and this influences those religious and cultural beliefs. The Caribbean diet is a blend of its um, own diverse influences, from African stews to Indian, um, to Indian influences. So acknowledging these can be essential when discussing those dietary habits and then certain medications that you want to provide to them. All right. Um, so... One of the things that we have to remember in these vulnerable areas, um, just because of where they are on the map, uh, are, are hurricanes and other natural disasters. Uh, there may be some trauma associated with those, uh, maybe not them personally if they're here in the mainlands, but if they have family that are going through that. And, uh, you know, some, some cultures and villages get completely wiped out um, after one of these natural disasters and these environmental impacts 
got to be able to communicate that and discuss that with your patient because um, it can impede or keep you from getting to uh, therapeutic successes if we aren't considering some of those environmental concerns that are specific to the Caribbean population. All right, so we do have a couple of um, additional podcasts that talk about LGBTQ plus communities, uh, but I do want to at least touch on it here because it does have some significant uh, cultural aspects to it. So the LGBTQ plus community is not defined by regional influences, right? It's 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 more to do with uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, and then expression. So this community transcends regional, ethnic, and national boundaries. Um, so let's talk about some of the main issues that we have to look for within this community. So familiarize yourself with terms like cisgender, transgender, non-binary, pansexual, asexual. The list goes on and on. There's quite a few uh, definitions that you need to be aware of. Uh, I'll go ahead and reference you to our um, hour-long podcast that we speak directly about LGBTQ plus communities. So these definitions, keep in mind, these can evolve over time. Um, so it's essential to stay up to date on what the uh, the terminology is and the language that's being used within this community. So we want to avoid assumptions. Do not assume someone's gender identity based on their appearance. Instead, you want to ask them for their preferred pronouns or their preferred um, identification. Transgender individuals face barriers to um, assessing gender-affirming care, and they may have had negative experiences in healthcare um, in the past, so they could be very sensitive to those healthcare disparities. You want to prevent that. You want to correct that. You want to be the person that is accepting of everyone and allows them to have a place where they can express themselves and talk about the issues that they're having so that we can treat them and get them the help that they need for their mental health care. Gender affirming care, now this includes hormone therapies, surgeries, and other procedures that align with an individual's physical characteristics with their gender identity. So um, while you may not be providing gender affirming care as a, a mental health provider, you're definitely going to be helping with the mental health aspects of an individual receiving gender affirming care from someone like a specialist or their primary care team. So be aware of events like the Stonewall Riots, which play a pivotal role in the LGBTQ plus rights movement. There's lots of rights movement examples. Uh, definitely become familiar with uh, their history and, and what they are proud of and what they consider um, almost religious in their, in their understanding of, of their community and their history. Same-sex marriage, uh, legal policies and issues that this community has dealt with. That's an ongoing, you know, while we may have a lot more freedom with and uh, protection today than we did even five years ago, it's still an ongoing concern. And many of them are quite traumatized by the events that have taken place over the last 50 years. So remember the same-sex marriage issues, adoption rights, workplace discrimination. All of this is going to vary by region and state. Uh, so just be familiar with what your groups are going through within your particular region. Family dynamics is a big one here. So LGBTQ plus individuals, they might have non-traditional family structures, or they might face challenges within their families over, um, you know, their particular identity or how they're living their lifestyle, if it's significantly different or even somewhat different than their actual family is living, especially if you have you know, um, a very conservative family or a religious family that does not align with this patient's thoughts and beliefs within the within the LGBTQ plus community. 
Then we want to create safe spaces, creating environments where these individuals feel safe and affirmed. And this happens in clinics that are using gender neutral restrooms, gender neutral um, uh, vocabulary. Um, now, I, I fully understand that there is a lot of debate in this area. Uh, and you're going to just have to, to do the best that you can to make sure that your patient is taken care of, okay? So a lot of times we have to set aside our own personal thoughts and beliefs on the topic, and we have to do what that patient needs first. Um, as long as, you know, we're not impeding or hurting them, it's, it's okay for you to say in your head, right, I, this is not what I believe, but this is what my patient is experiencing, and I need to be able to give them the care that, that connects with them. And that is a culturally responsible way of providing care, not only for this population, but every population that you're dealing with. Um, intersectionality, this is a big uh, thing with the LGBTQ plus population. So each of these individuals might also identify with other marginalized groups. Um, for an example, would be like a black transgender woman. So we're not just dealing with, with transgender, we're also dealing with the fact that this person is black or African-American and they may have some of the other um, concerns that we talked about earlier in the podcast that compound with the LGBTQ plus community. So essential to understand these intersections of, and the identities that coincide with these intersections because they are going to present with unique challenges um, that you need to uh, navigate in order to offer that comprehensive care. In some cultures, LGBTQ plus identities might be understood differently or may not align neatly with some of those Western conceptions. Uh, so approach each of these situations with openness and curiosity. That's going to be the key to this. Okay, finally, I know we're, we're finally at the last part here that we're going to talk about. I, I know there was a lot of information here, but uh, really important. These questions are becoming, um, there, there's a lot of them on the exam now. So you want to be able to identify, one, what the religion, what the culture, what the population is, and then some of the nuances or uh, very key points for each one of these groups, and then what you can do to treat or to um you know, show respect. And again, respect is the key word for these questions. So finally, we have the refugee or the immigrant community. Um, it's not a single homogenous group. This is going to consist of a lot of individuals from various countries, cultures, and backgrounds. So they bring a plethora of experiences, so many beliefs, and so many practices. Um, the reference uh, to the blend of indigenous, uh, African, European, Indian, and Chinese influences applies to many regions globally. And these refugees and immigrants might come from any one of these regions or beyond. And then when they get mixed in together, we're going to start creating new religion uh, beliefs, new uh, cultural beliefs as you know time goes on and they start to influence each other. So it is very comprehensive. It is very, um, can be very difficult to navigate through, but little by little, as we start understanding each one of these groups, we can understand them as a whole and then kind of catch up as we need to as things continue to change um, moving forward. So let's talk about some of the specifics um, with regard to refugee and immigrant community. Recognize the trauma many refugees endure, including uh, fleeing and violence, living in refugee camps, and being separated from family members, sometimes indefinitely. Many immigrants or refugees might not speak the dominant language that they have been relocated to. Uh, and this is, this is going to be hard because you've got to come up with interpreters and translation services that might not be very easy to find. So there's going to be a lot of legwork and you want to utilize, utilize an interdisciplinary uh, care approach when doing this. 
Now, an immigrant from a non-conservative society might have different views on gender roles and medical treatments than what's prevalent within their new country. Recognize religious holidays, dietary restrictions, or prayer routines. Again, there's, there's going to be this, this melting pot that can occur when we're dealing with refugees and immigrants, especially here in the United States, because once they get here, once they've been cleared and they're allowed to come in and uh, assimilate and become part of our, our culture here, you're going to start getting them all into one, one area. And you have to identify the differences in order to move forward and help each one of them individually. Again, this goes with uh, holidays, uh, dietary restrictions, and prayer as well. Um, traditional medicine, home remedies, um, all things that need to be considered with refugees and immigrants. Uh, and then understanding the complexities of statutes and limitations within the immigration system. Who are asylum seekers? Who are undocumented immigrants? Um, and then these rights that are associated with each one of these groups, and then the vulnerabilities that are associated with each one of these strategies and statuses. So communicate with local authorities. Talk to, if you're working in a camp or you're um, working in an area that has now taken on a specific uh, immigrant population or refugee source. You want to talk to the counselors and the state-appointed and federally appointed individuals to understand the group that's coming in and then what expectations they may have for you as a mental health provider. Um, some refugees and immigrants might come from backgrounds where they have limited access to education, and this is going to affect their literacy levels. So you need to meet them at their level of understanding. If they do not have, you know, they might not even have an equivalent education system like we do here in the United States, where we might think, well, I need to talk to them at a fifth grade level. They, that might not even be a thing from where they come from. So you need to be able to assess their communication skills, their learning skills, their ability to read and write, and then meet them at that level. Okay, refugees and immigrants might face discrimination and xenophobia in their new country, and this is going to lead to feelings of isolation and alienation. Take that into consideration as well. Remember that the term refugee or immigrant encompasses people from various regions, each with unique culture, history, and challenges. A Syrian refugee might have different experiences and needs than a Venezuelan immigrant. So building cultural competence for this population is going to offer support, understanding, and help you and them navigate within their new environment. And that goes with all of the groups that we're talking about here today. So we, we've discussed a countless, I, I know probably up to 12 or 15 different groups. A lot of them are very similar, but a lot of them are very different. So what do I want you to take from all of this? You, now you should have a pretty general idea of some of the main points with each one of these populations. Now, what does it all have to do with the test or you as a provider in general? You're never going to get it right every time. A simple, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Can you please explain it to me more so that way I don't make that mistake in the future is going to go a very long way when dealing with individuals. They get it, okay? They know you don't understand where they come from or who they are. They're going to appreciate the fact that you're trying, and then they're going to really appreciate it when the next time you interact with them, you get it right because you learned, you adapted, and you're giving them culturally competent care based on the information that you've received and how you've educated yourself. That's going to hit home. That is going to make them feel comfortable, and that is going to improve the therapeutic relationship more than anything else that you can do. And by the most important thing I can teach you today is respect. 
If you respect your patient, you respect where they come from, they are going to then respect you as the provider, and we're going to be able to incorporate these therapeutic interventions that are going to help them overcome their disorders or challenges that they're facing. So if you're a student and you're looking to pass the certification exam, the one thing I want you to remember is the word respect. If you're a seasoned mental health provider and you've already got your certification done and you're practicing, I want you to remember respect is the key word when it comes to culturally competent care. After respect, I would then emphasize education. Education, educate yourself on who they are, where they come from, what they represent, and then you will be able to be a well-rounded mental health provider. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I know it was a long one, but I think it's a vitally important one. If we want to treat our people, we need to know who our people are. We need to know what they believe, and we need to respect who they are and where they come from. Always remember to shine brightly, and we look forward to being with you in the next podcast. Bye-bye.